Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Thi Bui. She was born in Vietnam three months before the end of the Vietnam War and came to the United States in 1978. Her debut graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do, which is a beautifully illustrated emotional story about the search for a better future and longing for the past. Um, and uh, throughout the website uh, here at the beginning, uh, uh, Tibui, it's a, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, so on your website, uh, you describe yourself as Tibui cartoonist. Is, is that you, you have been a teacher, uh, you know, several different hats. I understand you even prepared uh, to, to go into legal field, but uh, cartoonist now, is that what you consider yourself to be? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't let myself call myself a cartoonist until I finished my book, um, because I wasn't ever sure if I was going to finish it. Um, but yeah, I have worn a lot of hats in my life, and I came to this career a little bit later in life. Yeah, uh, and, and this, this book took uh, quite a while. Uh, to to complete. I've read some reviews who speculated that it wouldn't have been the book it was if you'd have completed it earlier. Do you, you kind of grew, grew into really it? that's really true. Yeah. Uh, so you came, uh, I want to jump right in here and then we'll loop some of these other things uh, in. You uh, were born in Vietnam three months before the end of the Vietnam War. Your family came to the U.S. in 1978. Do you, do you have memories yourself of, of Vietnam? Well, I was only three years old when I left, so uh, barely a person. Um, I have a few flashbulb memories of the um, the journey leaving Vietnam, and I have like one or two memories, early childhood memories of me and my family in Vietnam. But that's about it. So the book is a reconstruction of stories told to me by other people. Uh, yeah, three is pretty young, um, and so that's that's interesting. Um, and I understand that your perceptions of these stories changed uh, over time. I, I want to quote you from an interview with the NPR. You say, I'd heard a lot of the stories growing up. The stories were pretty heavy, so I had this kind of heaviness that I grew up with. I want to make sense of the stories. W- was that the main impulse? You want to make sense of those stories? Yeah, the book is not a memoir in the sense of sitting down and telling about this extraordinary life. It's just an ordinary life that many people shared, but um, the book was a vehicle for me to ask my parents' questions and to figure out my own origin story, which is, I think, um, something a lot of us have. Like, we want to know where we came from. And for me, it just happened to include this history of Vietnam and this war that is the reason why I'm here in the U.S. Now, this experience, um, you know, we've seen it over and over again, and it's been portrayed in in some great art. By the way, your book is getting great reviews. Um, um, There is a heaviness to it. Uh, a lot of obstacles and and a lot of complications. One reviewer said it's like you know reading the book is like a like a chess match. You're, you're putting a lot of pieces together. Yeah, that definitely was part of the um, reason why it took so long. There were uh, there were a lot of things going on, and I go back not just to the history of the Vietnam War, but the wars before that too, because they were all part of the reasons why my family had to be displaced. Um, so it took a while to filter through all of the information to get down to like a, a narrative that would fit into a book um, that's mostly pictures. Let me ask you about that. What, a book that's mostly pictures, a, a graphic um, book. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- why that choice? Um, probably that's that I think in pictures and words. Um, I think if if I. If I had known more about film, I might have tried to make a film, but um, as a cartoonist, you get to make all the choices uh, just by yourself and not worry about money. It's actually very cheap to make a comic book. You just need time um, and the ability to draw. And then the other thing was I was contending with a lot of Vietnam War movies that have come out uh, in the years that I've been alive, Um, and I've watched almost all of them. um, And... Almost every time I was very disappointed and sometimes really offended by the depictions of Vietnamese people in the story of the Vietnam War. Um, and so I was uh, 
I, I guess it, it started out as a revenge project against all of those movies, actually. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, that's interesting to hear. Um, do, do you have an example or two from, from those movies that, uh, that you thought were, were too simplified to, uh, you know, didn't, didn't uh, paint a true picture? Um, well, everything from, of course, like the Rambo movies and, and Platoon, where, you know, like the actors who are Vietnamese don't even speak Vietnamese, or in the screenplays they're written um, speaking gibberish because it just doesn't matter, um, to like really um, critically acclaimed movies like Apocalypse Now, which just relegates the entire country to be the background for, you know, a white man's psychosis, or... This is probably the most damaging to me personally, um, Full Metal Jacket. I love Stanley Kubrick's movies, but Full Metal Jacket created this archetype of the, the South Vietnamese prostitute who's based in this horrible, horrible accent and says, me so horny, me love you long time, which is like a line that has lasted all of these years and been behind so many racist and sexist jokes thrown at me. And, and that uh, these images can be very powerful. They last, and they're very powerful, um, so I had to replace them with images of my own making. Yeah. Um, do you think, uh, it's, it's my view that there, there, there have been a, kind of a series of um, books that have, that have portrayed this experience um, in a more real, realistic light. Um, I'm thinking of The Sympathizer, for example. Right. Yeah, The Synthesizer was amazing. I listened to the audiobook while I was drawing uh, the last pages of The Best We Could Do, and it was so satisfying, um, especially the chapter, actually, where um, there is a, uh, a filmmaker who, who seems an awful lot like he's making Apocalypse Now, um, and, and it, it just gets pretty um, surreal and, and, and funny. Um, this is uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, Viet Thanh Nguyen. Now, you actually have a connection. You uh, you and your son and he and his child have done a book together. Uh, yes, it's actually coming out in a week or two. It's called um, Chicken of the Sea, and it's a book that Viet and I uh, did not expect to be working on, that um, it was the grandchild of his son, who was five years old at the time. And it's about chickens who become pirates. Um, they, they, uh, they, they got interest from an editor at McSweeney's, and then they were looking for an illustrator, um, and they asked me, but I was working on, you know, another graphic novel for adults, um, but I said, this, uh, this seems an awful lot like my son's sensibility. My son's 13. So he did a couple of sketches, and then it, it all came together because they, they really matched. So my son drew the book, and I um, colored and lettered it. Yeah, that that seems like a great project. So that that's coming out uh, soon. Yeah. Uh, so I want to ask you uh, before we get into um, drawing st- stories from your parents and and uh, creating this book, what were your what was your experience? Um, you know, growing up, uh, you're you're in America. Um, I don't know what you the, the expectation of your parents were that you're going to be a a good American, or the, the, were they concerned that you carry on your culture? What, what, what were your parents' expectations of of how their children would grow up in America? Um, well, they wanted us to be safe, first of all, and have a chance um, to go to school and uh, be whoever we wanted to be. Um, so survival and then like, the ability to, to thrive later on um, through education was a big deal for them because they were both teachers. Um, and that was something that they didn't see in, in our future in Vietnam. Um, other than that, I guess they just wanted to keep me safe. Um, you know, it was like the, the late 70s, early 80s when we arrived in the U.S. They watched movies like Fast Times at Ridgemont High and were terrified of the U.S. Um, and what it might do to their daughters. Uh, so they, they were kind of strict and they, they made us, uh, they, they kept a pretty close watch over us. Um, and so in, in that sense, I guess they were a bit traditional, but my parents are, are kind of strange people, um, not, not, not your prototypical Vietnamese parents. Uh, n- not prototypical? In, in what way? Well, like, for example, they let me study art, which is pretty unusual for, um, you know, the child of, of uh, refugee parents. 
um, because art doesn't pay usually, um, and it's a pretty risky thing to go into. But, you know, like many immigrant children, I double majored. So I, I did have the backup plan of going to law school. That is at least the stereotype. I don't know if that's true, that there, there's pressure on the kids. You're going to be doctors and lawyers. You're, you're going to, you know, you're going to be successful. Yeah, I mean, of course, not everybody follows that that model minority uh, path, right? But um, I think a lot of parents try. And then um, there's the fact that my parents come from like a middle class educated background, too. So the expectations are different. Um, I have a lot of friends who came over at the same time from the same places, but from a more rural or working class background. And their lives were very different. Um, and before we get to your parents, what what was your, what are some of your, I guess, biggest uh, memories? And I'm specifically thinking of, you know, was it was it a kind of the prototypical, stereotypical childhood? Did you? I imagine you encountered problems that uh, that, that immigrant children do encounter. Um. Well, the first thing is the price of housing. So we lived, uh, you know, we lived in an apartment building, um, six, a family of six in a two-bedroom apartment, so, you know, close quarters. Um, parents worked a lot, um, or my mom worked a lot, and then my dad had PTSD, so, um, you know, his, his form of child-rearing was not always perfect. Um, my sisters were on their own a lot, um, uh, you know, we all started working for, for our own money as soon as we could. Um, in school, uh, our neighborhoods tended to be public, you know, feeding into public schools that were overcrowded, um, very diverse, so that was a good thing. Um, but with, like, some of the problems of, like, uh, crowded urban schools with people who don't all um, get along. Um, and then I guess, like, there were the expectations of, of immigrant children, like, they're not very high often, so you don't necessarily get fed into the same um, college-bound, um, you know, bright futures that um, that you would like to. So sometimes the opportunities were a bit limited, and you had to, to search and, and work doubly hard to um, to get where you wanted to be. You know, you got interested in art, right, and went to art school, but double majored, right, you said. you did. Uh, I guess that was a backup plan? I, I went to UC Berkeley, and um, I was interested. I've always been interested in um, civics. Uh, always been somewhat of an activist since I was little. Um, but I also loved art, so I studied both of those things. I was in political science and art for a while until I switched to legal studies and art. And you were involved in uh, creating a, a new school, school for for uh, art school for immigrants. Did I get that right? No, it's actually a, a public school a public for school. immigrants in Oakland. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's an alternative public school for recent immigrants and English language learners. Because um, there wasn't one in California yet. And uh, the graduation rate for teenagers who were coming to the country without uh, much English was really, really low, something around 30 or 35 percent. So um, there was a need. And I joined a team of teachers and, and a principal who opened up this little school um, I think it's twelve years ago now. Uh, so what 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 was the need that you saw? You, the, I guess the language is is one one need, and, and the benefits benefits of having a, a school that's that's all immigrants. Exactly. Um, I had been a pub, uh, a high school teacher in New York before, and I had a few students who were English learners. But um, when you're teaching a class of like thirty five other students, you, those students often like are the last you know, the last thing you think about, and you just sort of make do with putting them next to somebody who might speak their language. But it makes a huge difference if you cater your entire curriculum and your your teaching methods to the needs of, like, people who don't understand you when you speak in English. Um, and the fact is that in America we have immigrants from lots of different countries who speak lots of different languages. And so it's really tricky to, um, to teach to that. But there is a method, and... Um, we, we were the school was um, started by a network that has existed in New York for over thirty years now. Um, so they opened up the school in, in California, um, where there wasn't one yet. I understand this year you you would you'd have kids uh, do uh, graphic novels or or comic books, tell their stories in in this form. 
Yeah, so this was part of the 10-plus years that I was working on the book just whenever I could, um, you know, teaching public t- uh, teach, teach a public school full-time and raising my son, who was very little. So I had very, very little time to be working on my book, and the artist in me yearned to do it so much that I made my students do the project, um, which was telling their immigration story in the form of a comic. And it was quite unfair because I took over 10 years to do mine, but I only gave them a semester to do theirs. <laughs> um, but they did a great job. And I learned so much about you know the world as it is now and refugees and immigrants and migrants from all over the world and their circumstances now. So it actually created this bond between me and, and more recent waves of refugees and, and migrants. There, were there stories similar to your story? So similar. And, and I learned that the, the designation of refugees is a quite arbitrary political one because there were um, kids who came from Central America who were fleeing, you know, in some ways more danger than my family was but they didn't get that designation of refugee that would have made their lives a little bit easier. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we uh, have more with Tibui. Uh, she is a cartoonist. That's uh, a fact on our website, tibui.com, Tibui cartoonist. Uh, her book, uh, The Best We Could Do, uh, is a story of her family and uh, their refugee experience, and it's much more. It's a story of family, a story of uh, um, fathers and daughters, mothers and daughters, and... Uh, and uh, it's getting uh, rave reviews. It's uh, been selected as the common literature book for many universities. Um, we'll have more following this break. Hi, this is Harley Barnes, a student reporter for Utah Public Radio. You hear me with updates during our daily Utah Public Radio newscasts. Timely and accurate information is critical, as is your support for Utah Public Radio. Take a moment now to donate to UPR. Begin by giving what you would typically spend to fuel your commute or spend on your daily coffee run. Your financial support makes it possible for us to continue coverage of COVID-19 rates in Utah, the changing economic trends, and response to rural Utah needs. Together, we can keep the information and the important conversations happening. We can't do it without you. Donate online at upr.org or through our UPR app. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November of last year. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking with T. Bui, who was born in uh, Vietnam three months before the end of the Vietnam War, came to the United States uh, with her family in 1978. Her debut graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do, uh, has been selected by uh, several universities as their common literature book. It's a National Book Critics Circle finalist in autobiography, an Eisner Award finalist in reality-based comics, made Bill Gates' top five favorite books of 2017. So, TB, we have uh, we've mentioned that this uh, project took quite a while to uh, to come to fruition. Um, I understand this began, um, I guess, with the with the birth of your son. How how so? Um, it actually began when I was uh, in my late twenties uh, as a graduate student. I had the opportunity to um, do a, a thesis project around representations of Vietnamese people in pop culture and scholarship in the U.S. Um, so I did a lot of uh, interviews with my parents and, and my siblings, um, did a lot of background research, compiled this very academic thing, but I always knew that I wanted it to um, be readable, be, you know, be, be interesting to a wider audience. And I didn't, I don't know, I was, I was paralyzed for a while, and it wasn't until I had, I gave birth to my son that I crossed this threshold, I think, into parenthood that gave me a new understanding and empathy for my parents. Um, and also, it's just really hard to give birth. So I figured if I could do that, I could make a book. <laughs> so <laughs> it was somewhat freeing, and so I just decided it was pro- appropriate to um, start page one with the birth of my son. Uh, yeah, it does begin with yeah, the birth of your son. Uh, you did, in the process, you studied um, books like Mouse and Persepolis. These are graphic novels that also tell multi-generational stories of migration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While I was looking for a, a suitable form for the story, um, I happened to read Mouse and Persepolis, and they were doing exactly what I wanted to do, which was um, tell 
a family story against the backdrop of like larger historical events and make the connections between the two. Um, maybe this would be a time for you to put in a plug for, um, I, I know there will be some in the audience um, <laughs> who will be thinking graphic novel you know, equals cartoon and uh, equals simplistic. That is certainly not the case. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that and why uh, why a graphic novel is, is uh, uh, a good forum to to tell a, a complicated story like the one you've told. Um, I kind of like the lowbrow reputation that uh, comics have. Um, it's an interesting challenge to go up against. Um, cartoonists are basically the, the floor tile layers of the literary world. You know, mm-hmm. like, if we do our job well, you just waltz right over it and read it in an hour or two, you know. And I'm like, that, that was 10 years of my life. Um, but if we didn't do it well, then you would trip up and, and the reading experience would not be pleasant. Um, so that's always funny. If I, I have to tell people, read it again, and you'll see more things the second time around. Um, I just think that we are, we're, we're all storytellers at heart. All writers, all, um, cartoonists, we're storytellers. Um, filmmakers are storytellers. Even um, songwriters are storytellers. And um, readers are also multi-sensory, so there's a tradition that we have of like books just being in words and, and, and looking a certain way, but um, this is a relatively new form that um, you might associate with just superheroes, but that's, I like to remind people, that's a genre of comics, and there are many genres in the medium of comics, so um, mine is, mine happens to be a, a non-fiction book um, Trojan horses in a lot of history and um, issues about immigration, displacement, intergenerational trauma, and a lot of other things that you wouldn't necessarily find in a superhero comic. So um, it's evident from the book you you really got your parents to open up. How how did you do that? Um, I think a lot of the credit has to go to them for being willing to talk in the first place. Um, that was my green light for working on the book. I, I think it would have been really, really difficult if, if I had had two parents who didn't want to talk at all. Um, my father really loves to talk about things, but, um, you know, those kind of stories can be really overwhelming and um, messy if you just talk about them casually. And so it was the, the formal process of, like, interviewing him and making sure that I got the timeline right that made me like go back and question him again and again and again about the same things. And that was, that was actually hard because I was, you know, interrogating him about really painful memories. Um, but because it was in the service of a thing that we were going to give to other people, um, I think he and my mother both um, decided that it was worth it. And my mother had, you know, my mother was uncomfortable at first with some of the things I was sharing with other people. Um, but I think that, she also felt like this was a story that hadn't been told enough um, or, or very well, so she wanted to, to also contribute in that way. You mentioned your uh, PTSD in connection with your dad, and you, you say he's he, a very nervous person um, uh, based on his, you know, his experiences. Uh, you, I'm going to quote you here. Um, you write, how much of me is my own? How much is stamped into my blood and bone predestined? Being my father's child, I too was a product of war. Yeah, yeah. And for my father, it wasn't just the the war in the 60s, but the the Japanese occupation in the 40s and the famine that killed people around him, um, the French fighting, the Viet Minh in the north, um, all of that shaped him from a very, very young age. Um, and broke up his family and displaced him not once but twice. So um, he carries a, a lot of baggage, um, and he's never seen a psychiatrist or therapist. Um, so we use art, I guess, to art and storytelling to try to make sense of that jumbled mess of a life experience um, and the effect that it has had on his relationships with other people, especially his family. Mm. Uh, tell me about your mother. I understand she she came up from a uh, more of an upper class background. Yeah, she was luckier in that she grew up um, not around so much fighting and, and with a lot of means and the ability to to um, live a happier life. 
Um, but she's so strong, and I think a lot of that has to do with, I mean, her own just her own personal integrity, but also the fact that she wasn't broken by life um, like my father was. Made her able to be the strong one when it came time to flee the country and take care of the family in the new country. What do you think accounts for that that difference? I mean, uh, you never know. I guess until you go through those kinds of and and hopefully, exactly. hopefully we won't. Most of us won't have to go through those experiences. What accounts for that? Uh, the different um, sort of reactions from your parents. I don't know. I, I do think that part of it is like if if, if you're so broken, um, it's hard for you to uh, maintain uh, when when you're when you're stressed again by new circumstances, um, and if maybe if you've had like a solid, a more solid foundation as a child, as a young, a young person, it leaves you enough capacity um, to deal with stresses later on. So you never know. Um, some of it is just your own personality. I mean, I would like to think that those of us who are lucky enough to not be tested in that way by life um, could still imagine ourselves in, in, in um, the shoes of people who are and, and think about how we're all quite different. And so maybe that'll help us be less judgmental of um, people who maybe don't do as well as others. What are uh, what are the well, top one or two stories that stand out to you from the from the book? While you're thinking about that, one of them that at least you've talked about is. Um, your father had an encounter with and I can't remember his name. The the famous uh, general who who was made famous in the in the photograph, the famous uh, mm-hmm. Saigon execution. Yeah. Your father ran up against him. It wasn't wasn't fatal. Right, right. Uh, so um, Saigon was basically a police state during the war, um, and so during the state offensive. The uh, military police were um, in checking up on a lot of neighborhoods in the city to look for the people who were behind um, the attacks on the city. And so my parents were living in a, uh, a neighborhood, a not very nice neighborhood in Saigon um, called Bansala, uh, which translates to the chessboard. And my parents remember being like having their doors knocked on and like getting called out um, a couple of times during, during that night or that week, I think. My father was... Um, picked on for looking like a hippie and the general um, told one of his um, his uh, his uh, his guys to give my ha- give my dad a haircut like take out a take out a hair clipper and give him a haircut right on the spot um, but my dad managed to like talk talk the guy out of it saying that he was a teacher and how would he look if he walked in the next day with like a you know shaved head um, and the, <laughs> which is you know, it kind of has some comic elements, but but uh, there's an undercurrent of danger running all through life through this period, right? You never know what's going to happen. Right. I can't imagine, you know, having my door knocked on and having, like, you know, the police have that that, that kind of authority over me. Um, anything that particularly stands out uh, in your parents' experience in Vietnam that you've told in your novel? Um, for me, it was the mundane stuff, you know, like, you sort of imagine war and, uh, um, sort of imagine war as this epic thing, and it's almost otherworldly, like it happens in, in stories, but then when you really get the details of it, you realize um, all of the, the mundane ways in which it affects your life, like uh, finances and, and money, like that my parents had it had a promising future when they were young and, and got married because they were both working. And um, this future never happened because the country fell apart around them. So just thinking about things like that made it easier for me to um, connect it with my own experience of, you know, being a young person and developing, going to college and, and figuring out my career and getting married and, like, you know, trying to make a good life, and realizing that so much is out of your control um, when... Your country's on fire. Um, and and then it's it it seems uh, they're complicated lives, right? It's like a chessboard, um, and and it's your life, right? And and you see yourself as these complicated, uh, you know, people, human. 
and then you're mm-hmm. and then you're sort of spit out of a of a country. You you have the opportunity to come to the United States, and there can be a tendency for the for for the natives to view refugee, refugees a, a total in a total stereotyped way as a monolith, just as the other, yeah, and not as personalities. Uh, I wonder what right. what effect that has. You've you've gone through this. Your family has. Yeah, yeah. No, it's terrible to be treated as vermin, um, to, to be seen as a threat or, or a plague. Um, and all you want is for people to understand why you came. And if 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 if, uh, if you had had a choice in the matter, you wouldn't have come. You would have stayed home, that's where you belonged. Um, but you have no home, so so now what do you do? You have to survive. No one just sits there and lets lets their kids die. Um, so every you know, the 71 million people in the world who are displaced right now are pretty much all the same. They're all looking for for, for a place to call home. Um, so having been one of them, um, I have a lot of empathy for them. And then now being on the other side, uh, getting to be part of, like, conversations about immigration policy and whatnot, I just try to get everybody to look harder at the actual, um, at the actual facts before making a decision, because the uh, the response um, to shut down our borders, to build walls, to um, call people horrible things, that's just an emotional response, and it's not based on any actual facts. Um, I'm, I'm curious, so if it took some 12 years, right, to, to get the book to finished form, and in, the, in that time, which is, you know, a long time, but it's also a short time, uh, in that time, um, seems like the attitudes of the United States, and the, um, at least in the political realm, have have uh, made several changes, several cycles toward re- refugees and uh, immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's um, there's definitely swings swings back and forth um, when Vietnamese boat people were um, all over the news in the U.S. Uh, most Americans were very afraid of so many numbers coming here, and uh, most were, were not for it. Um, and Jimmy Carter, who's president at the time, went against public opinion in doubling the number of refugees allowed every month. And my family was like one of the beneficiaries of that. Um, <clears throat> so I, I do like to remind people that you know we weren't wanted at first either, and. Um, in California, the governor at the time was a, a very a much younger Jerry Brown, who actually was uh, not not particularly welcoming to boat people, um, to Vietnamese boat people at first. But he's since completely changed um, his his uh, his attitude towards refugees and has been much more welcoming, you know, up, up until he um, finished his last term. So people change um, for the for the better in. in and then also we've had swings where um, greater numbers creates like greater fear of outsiders um, and people who follow sort of a scarcity uh, mentality um, start to worry about how to preserve things for for the natives. And it's it's actually this concept that I'm writing about in my next book. It's like what happens to people when we as a country um, have problems integrating new people into our conception of us. What, what, where do those people go? And the, the next book is called Nowhere Land. N- Nowhere Land. Tell me a little bit mm-hmm. more about that, the, the, the problems people have conceptualizing this. Um, well, it comes from uh, seeing interviews with people who have been caught up in the, the prison to deportation pipeline. Um, a lot of refugees who came at the same time as me from the same places um, had ended up in prison. Um, like we were talking earlier about, like there were some of us who followed that model minority arc, and then there were others who followed a, a different path, and a lot of it was outside of their control. Um, and they got very, very unlucky and you know, served prison sentences that were far, far longer than they should have gotten. Um, and because they were born elsewhere, and because of the laws that we passed in the 90s, um, they became eligible for deportation back to countries that their parents had fled as refugees or that they weren't even born in. Um, so interviewing them, I've been learning a lot about um, 
ICE detention, but also our prison system. And, uh, you know, we, inco- we incarcerate a lot of people in the U.S. Um, we have like a quarter of the world's incarcerated population. We're only 5% of the world's population, which is an incredible thing. So prisons are sort of a nowhere land. Definitely detention centers, which are everywhere in the U.S., but usually in really remote places, are types of nowhere land. Um, yeah, so we have along the border with Mexico, uh, and um, and then also I'm including my recent visit to a refugee camp in Greece, where people who are coming from Africa and Asia are trying to get into Europe, but um, stopped in Greece. Another form of nowhere land. Yeah, yeah, those refugee uh, camps uh, certainly, and you can understand the nowhere land. What uh, what was that like? Your visit to to that camp in Greece? It was intense. It was my first time in a refugee camp since I lived in one as a child. Um, and I went with my best friend from high school, who was a refugee herself from Afghanistan in the early 80s. Uh, she came with my translator because about 80% of the, the folks in that camp um, are from Afghanistan. Um, so it was intense for both of us, and I'm really glad that we shared the experience because there was a lot of um, there was a lot of processing that we had to do uh, by ourselves after we talked to people. Um, but it was also you know, um, kind of wonderful, too, in an odd way. Um, I think when you open your eyes to the fact that the world is not all sunshine and roses, um, it actually feels good to to be with people who are trying to do something about it. And so I met a lot of very, very brave people who do amazing work. Um, and even though the work is hard and their work will never be done, they're doing it. And I can't imagine the world if, it, if we didn't have those people. You mentioned you and your friend, if I understood you correctly, you had to do some processing after you went on these these visits. What was what did you have to process? Oh, sometimes it was just a good cry, you know, and you don't want to cry in front of people that you're interviewing because you make them feel worse. But there's some secondary trauma that you experience, and you, of course, must know this as somebody who talks to people. Um, sometimes when they're telling you you know, these horrible things that have happened to them. Um, you just want to break down and cry, but you can't do that in front of them, so you have to do it later. What um, What's the reaction? You, I, I know you must uh, talk to, to people, refugees, immigrants, uh, you know, Vietnamese community, uh, community, other communities. What's what's the reaction? Or I guess maybe more to the point, what's the feeling um, in reaction to the current administration's hardline approach to immigration and, and accepting of refugees? Um, I've seen a lot of amazing organizing happening in the last two, three years, uh, and it's been really wonderful to be um, meeting so many people who are trying to make change at, at all different levels. <clears throat> um, and then I've... I've of course, in my own in, in the Vietnamese American community, there's some troubling um, attitudes about, um, you know, calling ourselves special somehow, like somehow we're legal or, or, or different from current um, people who are trying to come to the U.S. and make it home. Not that's very troubling to me because one, it's untrue. Um, you know, those of us who left on boats, like if we were arrested, we would have been put in jail, which made us totally illegal. Um, and we weren't wanted either. So um, something that I try to talk to people about is our, our actual um, similarities with uh, more recent ways of of, mi- of migration, and that we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't buy into the scarcity complex and, and side with side with the side with the bullies, uh, and that we should try to assume our own political powers so that we can actually stand up for what is right. Uh, are are there some in some of those communities who who do have the scarcity complex and say, well, we we came earlier and uh, you you've come lately and uh, and perhaps there's no room for you. Yeah, it is it is quite high actually in the Vietnamese community compared with other Asian American communities. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Um. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe part of it is some lingering, uh, lingering loyalty to the Republican Party, um, which uh, you know did make friendships with 
some of the early um, folks who settled in Orange County, California, which was like a major hub of Vietnamese Americans. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, still trying to figure it out. Part of it is a little bit of misinformation. and the, So the only thing, as an educator, the only thing I can think of to, like, counter the, the misinformation is to, to try to counter it with, like, translation, like, you know, media in Vietnamese um, to, to make sure that people are informed about policies and what's going on. Um, and then the other thing is um, just to stand up as an example myself as somebody who's trying to reach out to many communities in the U.S. And the goal is not to um, divide, but actually to to help people see that we're all here and the way to move forward is to figure out how to share space, not to push people out or lock the door behind us once we got in. Uh, certainly. Um, I want to take another break before we go to that break. I want to... I'm curious to get your reaction. I don't know if you're aware of uh, of, of this. Uh, it's caused quite a stir here in the last couple of days. Uh, Utah Governor Gary Herbert has written a letter to President Donald Trump asking that more refugees be uh, allowed to settle in Utah. Um, of course, the Trump administration has been, uh, you know, uh, shrinking those mm-hmm. numbers uh, nationwide. Um, and uh, he, he, he says, you know, refugees are good citizens and we have a, a good history in Utah of, of accepting them and civilizing them. And he goes on to cite some, uh, some history. He said that uh, uh, Utah's history is a haven for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who fled religious persecution and forms this approach to refugees. I don't know if you're familiar with this, this letter. What, what's your reaction is? I think that's great. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that welcoming um, refugees has been... Um, a hallmark of many states, um, and it's not like a Democrat or a Republican issue. It's like just a humane um, thing to do. The woman to open your doors was... when you when you when you can. Um, so that's wonderful to hear. Well, we'll uh, we'll take another break. Come back for uh, our last uh, segment. Uh, we're talking with T. Bui. Uh, her website, by the way, is tbui.com. Uh, her latest uh, book is a graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do. It's uh, getting uh, rave reviews, and it's uh, on some uh, some top ten, top five lists. Also uh, is being selected for a common literature book for universities. More following this break. The woman was on the ground, and the bull was tossing her in the air and back on the ground. And where were you? I was right on the other side of the fence, but... The fence was electric. Why is it that certain people will risk their lives for a stranger? I went ahead and just climbed through the fence. While others won't. My neighbors would not help me. That question this week on Radiolab. Coming up at 10 o'clock here on UPR. Utah Public Radio is here for you with vital coverage during complex times. We want you to know that we're working hard to bring you accurate and in-depth reporting on the election, latest on the new coronavirus, and many other stories. We made the decision to postpone our spring member drive in order to keep our airwaves devoted to the important news that's happening all the time right now. However, we still rely on member support to keep this service strong. If you can give something today to help make the service continue for everyone who needs it, we welcome your support at upr.org. And thank you. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November of last year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our brief last segment with T. Bui. About six minutes left or so. And uh, T. Bui's uh, memoir, graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do, is out and, and available. Uh, so, T. Bui, I want to... Uh, want to uh, talk in this last segment about the the title and uh, again talking about mm-hmm. how maybe your perceptions of your parents have changed if they have uh, during the writing of this book so the best we could do what uh, what made you choose that title um, I had a working title for a while that was uh, maybe a refugee reflex but I also knew that wasn't quite right mostly because it didn't sound very good um, and also I wasn't sure that was just about refugees. I wanted it to be something more personal. And when I was a parent myself, and then also trying to figure out how to 
incorporate my aging parents into my daily life more, realized the book was also about parents and children. And um, the best we could do just came to me as um, my summation of, of um, parenthood. Um, yeah. Um, realizing that they had just done that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wh- by the way, what do your parents think of the book? Um, I think they like it. <laughs> my mother tells her friends to buy it. Uh, my father is very supportive. I think he really enjoyed being a collaborator in, in, in the creation of the book. Um, but you know, they're very shy, so they don't, they don't shower me with praise or anything. We don't, we're not, we're not that kind of family. Well, imagine you, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, you can read between the lines, your mother telling people to buy it. I guess that's, that's a positive review. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I have to hear from other people that she's proud of me. Yeah. <laughs> which is, which is, <laughs> which is not atypical, right? <laughs> um, <Nope. laughs> um, you write about intentional lessons and unintentional lessons that one learns being an immigrant to a new country. What are you talking about there? Um, well, there are the things that your parents tell you to do, like clean up after yourself or study hard for, for school. Um, but then there are things that they teach you through their actions that maybe they weren't even thinking about. Um, and there are, of course, good lessons, like I learned from my parents, that you know you can build a life from nothing. You can start over so as long as you're still alive. Like there's, You've still got hope. And so I feel like I learned a lot of agency those unintentional lessons from my parents who were just such survivors. Um, the dark side of those unintentional lessons was like, sometimes I can be very fearful um, and I can, you know, I think I maybe have a, a sense of, of danger in the world um, that I wouldn't if I had just grown up in peace or come from, you know, parents who had grown up in peace. Um, but, you know, a country falling and, and no longer existing in the future in one's lifetime is like something I've already gone through. So it's, it's like in my head, it's not that implausible. Well, finally, just we have a minute left. What do you hope people take away from the book? What do you hope their reaction is? Um, empathy, I guess, um, which they hopefully have for the characters in the book. Um, and then empathy for characters that they might encounter in real life who um, remind them of, of, of the book. Um and uh, I guess a, 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 an openness and a willingness to um, look at people uh, a second or a third time before they decide who they are. Well, the book is uh, the graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do, and uh, it's getting uh, great reviews, uh, been selected on a lot of top ten lists, and uh, that's out and available now. And the website is tbui.com. Tbui, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's uh, the program for today. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. Several years ago, a new conference popped up in Salt Lake City, CookieCon, a conference for cookie makers, and not just any cookie makers, artists of royal icing, who create edible works of art in an endless array of shapes and sizes. Since its beginnings in Utah, CookieCon has grown to involve more cookieers and locations. In 2020, the National Conference was held in Louisville, Kentucky. Along with workshops and demos, CookieCon included cookie cutter bingo, speed cookie decorating, and even cookie for a fun night singing with friends. Cindy Atkin, professional cookie artist, shared some of her experiences following CookieCon 2020 including favorite classes and current trends. Cookie Con is a place where people who enjoy the art of cookie decorating gather to learn new skills, new products, collaborate with each other. It's a real uh, sharing community. It's really interesting because they come from all walks of life. Some people are nurses and they need to de-stress. They love creativity and they like to bake. Cindy's favorite class turned out to be the Art of Edible Painting, 
taught by a cookier who described how some painting styles can offer cost efficiency for client orders. As Cindy explained, sometimes painting a cookie is faster than making seven colors and lining a cookie to be flooded with matching royal icing. However, in this portrait painting class, she practiced a more involved technique, sure to up her game for the next cookie con competition. I could have done that the whole four days. It was moving food coloring around on a cookie without putting too much water because royal icing, its enemy is water. It dissolves. So I had to be really careful on how much water, but it was kind of like watercolor painting, but being way, way strict with how much water. I loved the class because for a person who wants to compete, and know all that you can do on that advanced level, but it will never make money. (laughs) Where Cindy does succeed in the cookie business is in teaching others and meeting cookie orders with current trends. Trends are in colors. Just think about interior design. So what colors are in in interior design are in cookies. What colors are in for weddings, people will design cookies about that. In 2019, the top colors were blush and gold. For other special events, certain characters pop up again and again. This year, gnomes are in. And last year, llamas. So there's those kind of things. I heard ostriches are coming in. (laughs) I just am always researching online and seeing what other people were doing. And then you walk through a store. You just are always looking around and seeing what trends are. Cindy also talked about trends in tools and ingredients, such as isomalt, which comes in sticks or granules for melting. In the olden days, we would crush lifesavers or Jolly Ranchers, and when you mailed them, they would be the window in a gingerbread house. But now they have isomalt, and it looks like glass, and you can do... One class had a a mermaid, but her fins were made with isomalt, so they were transparent, and then they airbrushed them and touched gold on the ends. It was just gorgeous. Cookie makers are also turning to modern capabilities, including 3D printing technologies to design their own cookie cutters. After four days, Cindy returned from CookieCon with a box full of goodies, ready to add to her cookie repertoire. You can see cookie cutters. I got cookie cutters there. Um, thinking about weddings in the future. I got freebies. My box is half full of freebie cookie cutters, tips, and stencils, and sprinkles, <laughs> pens. I mean, it's just so fun for me to peek through this box and remember what all the things I bought. You need to go to CookieCon with the budget or you get really bad trouble. (laughs) This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Silicon Slopes Magazine, focused on Utah tech and startup industries, supporting good causes that affect us all. Information about our weekly town hall meetings or advertising in the magazine at siliconslopesmagazine.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.